0: But it does still start with, with place, and place plays such an important role, Catherine, in, in Frank Morehouse's right. by telling us what are some of the qualities he loved about Nowra, but also some of the things he bridled against?
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. So, I mean, the interesting thing about um, Frank was that, or well, one of many interesting things, he was born into a very respectable, respectable, solid middle-class family in Nara. There's a Morehouse Park named after his parents, and his father, ...manufactured the first dairy boiler for sterilising milk in Australia. Um, and he had a wonderful factory named the Morehouse, Morehouse the Machinery Man. It's really fantastic. And, you know, the first time I interviewed one of Frank's brothers... ...and his sister-in-law, um, we drove down to Nowra. Um, they thought I was there to write about Frank's father... And they were astonished to learn that there might be something to write about Frank. Because I don't think they'd read any of his books. <laughs> Given that Frank's... And Frank's mother, Perth, was... Perth Morehouse, was deeply involved in the CWA. And actually... and it, Something that I discovered only towards the end of writing the book... ...was that Frank had had um, a First Nations nanny, um, Belle MacLeod. And... She um, is interviewed in a book I refer to, um, Country Women's Association and the Colour Bar. Uh, And she talks about the Morehouse family and helping raise the children. And so Perth was one of this respectable woman who wanted in, in the era that it was to do the right thing. And so they invited a whole lot of indigenous women to be part of the CWA. But there's a kind of hilarious story that I tell in the, the first chapter where uh, um, Perth and her, her colleagues in the CWA were trying to teach Indigenous women how to bake scones and make silk flowers that you turned on a brass tool. <laughs> and naturally the First Nations women were looking at them going, "Hello, we've been doing this in the ashes forever and we don't need to know how to make French silk flowers. Thank you very much. We just like to be equal so um, so Frank, I mean, in a way, always took that work ethic he learnt from his father with him. He was sent to a technical high school, even though he was a very bright guy. Um, and he, you know, because he was expected to learn the family trade. And so at the age of 17, he became... He ran away, as he put it to me, to become a copy boy on the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. And... Um, so he was always torn between his very um traditional middle class roots in Nara and the kind of bohemian set that he then went to mix with in
0: the sixties and seventies well, let's go on to some of that bohemian set. I mean he was living a double life at the time which homosexuality was a crime. Um, I was talking to David Maher ahead of this he was saying oh you should you should ask catherine." Um, We know about his parents, but what was going through his head at puberty? Uh, Because it's not something that seems to emerge in in as much detail in his writing.
1: No. So, I mean, Futility and Other Animals, which was the first book of short stories that Frank published, was instantly banned under the frankly ridiculous censorship laws at the time. And in it, he writes quite openly about homosexual experiences. It's not him, but it's a character. And I remember when I interviewed David Marr, he said... ..because he'd edited Frank at the National Times in the 80s. And he said... ..I started to think, maybe Frank's a poof. Now, David's allowed to say that, okay, because he's gay. And he said... You know, because no one could write so convincingly about homosexual sex unless they'd actually engaged in it. And so, you know, Frank was both bisexual. He had relationships with men and women. um, And he was also a cross-dresser from a young age. And he told me once that two-thirds of his closet, his wardrobe, was female. But he never wore it outside. You know, in the street, he was always dressed as a man. So, I mean, you can't. I, I, we talked at length, I did 25 interviews with him, but the level of conflict that he would have felt as a young man was quite extraordinary, I think. And, you know, probably everyone in this room looking at the demographic, or not everyone, but a lot of you will remember when homosexuality was illegal. And not only was it illegal, but to come out as gay or bisexual um, would mean. Um, you probably lose your job and the love of people around you. So, I mean, psychologically, um, Frank really endured an enormous amount.
0: One of the features about him is his willingness to plunder his private life for his art. Um, You quote him quoting uh, Graham Greene, "...there's a splinter of ice in the heart of any writer." Uh, I take a pretty dim view of that use of private letters to further one's art. Why couldn't he uh, put a little little bit more space between reality and fiction? Yes, that's a great question, Andrew. And so
1: this was the dilemma for me, and I I put it in the afterwood to the book because I took Helen Garner, who I'm lucky enough to know, I took her excellent advice, which is she said she learnt very young when she had an affair with a tutor at... ...doing her first degree, two things... ...that love can sometimes be about betrayal... ...and secondly, to start an essay without bullshit preamble. So I tried to start the book without bullshit preamble... ...but in the afterward I explained my approach... ...which is, the archives, there's about 160 boxes... ...there are incredibly explicit letters... ...between male and female lovers of his... ...and a lot of them didn't ask to be in that archive. Um, and one of them is a very close friend of mine... ...and she allowed me to name her, I have her permission... ...the academic and writer Fiona Giles. And one day I was in the Friar archive, the Library Archive... ...at the University of Queensland... ...and I was going through this thick folder... ...of letters between Fiona and Frank... Um, they had a 13-year relationship which started when she was 17 and he was 38, actually. But there's a book called 4017, 17 which is based on their relationship. And I was standing in the quadrangle crying and gulping for air and I rang her and said, Fee, I can't believe that I'm reading this because they're both writers and some of the letters were incredibly pornographic and well-written pornography too. <laughs> and but I felt like a spy in the house of love and it made me really think through that that's why it's not a tell-all memoir views I did with people and they told me what they wanted to tell me I I chose to not reveal what's in the archive
0: other people may choose to and the Frank's lovers seem to take different approaches to, uh, to, to this. Uh, so Wendy James was outraged by her portrayal as Margaret in Martini, uh, but then you quote another uh, lover of Frank's who says that she felt there was an implicit contract by which she expected to see uh, their affair in the pages of his books. Um, to what extent is, is that d- were, were some of those around him consenting to, uh, to having their stories borrowed for his works?
1: I think that's a really, really difficult question. Um, I mean, ethically, this—you know—because I'm someone who, you know, is always kind of troubled by ethics, and so was Frank, actually. But he said that he numbed himself when he was writing, both to the risks he took in bringing his own experiences into his literature. But I think that, um, on an ethical level, I question you know, to what extent you should automatically assume that you can just draw on the milieu around you. And Helen Garner writes about this. I mean, she's the author, I think, in Australia who's most like Frank. Um, And I, so I I would... It's a difficult question to answer. Um, There's no question that he drew people with often thin disguise into his fiction. And he was writing about the 70s in Balmain. And so that was... Um, Just very briefly, I mean, what he and Michael Wilding and a whole range of other writers were trying to get away from was the old Henry Lawson bush tale. And they were trying to write about the 70s and the left. And, you know, I guess one of the things Frank and I shared was when when I first met him in the early 90s, I said, how would you describe your politics? And he said, I'm a left-leaning democratic anarchist. And I went,
0: me too. (laughs) So, I want to come to, uh, to the left in just a moment, but just one final question on that kind of plundering of, of personal stories. How much of that is because of what, uh, or is attributable to what David William Des- Williamson describes as Frank's competitive. In- David, and I really like David. Um, he and Frank weren't
1: particularly good friends, <laughs> and oh, I write about why David felt quite rejected by Frank when he arrived in Sydney. And yeah, Frank, look, all those guys. I'm not saying women can't be competitive, but, you know, it, there was a whole lot of these guys who collected in Sydney in Balmain and in um, Melbourne in Fitzroy and Carlton. In fact, I'm married to a man in his 70s who was part of the pram factory and and all of that left-wing, creative, cultural scene, which is all fabulous. But, yeah, those guys were always pushing and shoving each other. Um I think it's fair to say that Frank, while he did draw directly on the milieu around him, um, did always have a, a really strong sense of ethics and he did question himself.
0: So as you talk about in the book, uh, Frank came in on the, the tail end of the Sydney push, the movement that included John Anderson and Jermaine Greer and Wendy Bacon and others. Um, I've always found it a bit hard to to get into the... Uh, but the Sydney push, both intellectually and culturally, they always seemed like a sort of... ..a bit of a pale echo of the Bloomsbury set. Am I being too harsh? No, are you being too upper-middle class? I don't
1: know. You've got background, Andrew. <laughs> no, I mean what that... Well, the Sydney push, for those of you who don't know, but many of you do, um, it was a, a libertarian movement. And so, basically, you know, their, their mantra was um, don't vote because every time you vote, you vote for a politician, you know, which is... Uh, concerns me. I'm not that kind of libertarian. And the other thing is that, you know, a lot of women who joined the push, this is in the 40s, 50s, um, you know, they paid for the serial abortions. They were left holding the baby, literally, or having abortions, and some of them died from back-out abortions. Um, So it was not... It was a left-wing movement... Characterized by a lot of what someone called critical drinking. Um, <laughs> but ultimately it was very homosocial. And uh, it I, and I think that when you one of the most interesting things to me, and I really wrote my first book about this, was the collision of sexual liberation and women's liberation. So this moment at which the women, and then along with gay liberation and so on, um, and land rights movements the women are rising up and saying to the men, enough, you know, um, we're the ones who are losing out here. You know, sure, you you get all the free sex you want. And, you know, Megan Morris, who's a, a writer and intellectual, talks about being at the tail end of the push too and how monogamy was, you know, the worst thing in the world. You had to be polyamorous and yet that didn't serve women very well.
0: You talk about the annual libertarian conference in in Minto and, uh, you know, I'm struck when I read these tales of the uh, uh, combination of free love and drinking. It it seems not to be a terribly feminist affair. In fact, it it sort of has shades of the sort of hyper-masculinity that was the dominant culture in that era. Yeah, and it was heavy drinking and then
1: into the 70s, obviously, other forms of drugs. you know, And I'll take the time to say that you should all look up an organisation called Unharm. I chair the board and I think we should take drugs out of the criminal code. That's just a little sideline political comment, personally. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was hyper-masculine. And that's what people like Sandra Levy and Wendy Bacon, eventually... And there's a whole range of women I mention in the book. They started challenging this and saying... And it's interesting because Jermaine Greer, you mentioned, she was a total libertarian. And I think a lot of, um, you know, she's seen as, you know, our greatest feminist. But if you read The Female Eunuch, it's an incredibly libertarian book. You know, it's, it's even though it's seen as like, the, you know, this best-selling um, women's liberation book, actually she's talking about it from a, li- sex, from a libertarian perspective... So it, it, I mean, in Sydney, I think the feminist movement has always had the fingerprints of libertarian on it, libertarianism on it, and it's, they're probably on me too. I mean, I'm—I think the term these days is I'm a sex-positive feminist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, I mean, despite all of the sex and the drinking, you say that uh, Frank Morehouse had the writing approach of a diligent office worker, uh, putting his notes in his index cards, coming into the office at the same time each morning, uh, with the result that you've got 18 books, film, TV scripts, essays and journalistic pieces. So how important was that routine to his uh, ability to produce a lot of, of high quality work? Well, that goes back to your, you know, one of your initial questions.
1: So, in a way, he took Nara with him. He, he quipped to me once, and Frank, uh, one of the things I haven't said is Frank is terribly funny. I mean, very tongue in cheek, and you know, I really enjoyed his sense of humour. And he once said to me, "I'm um, writing about Nara." Now, <laughs> I'm glad you get the joke, right? Because someone asked me in an interview and said, "What do you mean? Is it all about Nara? How?" didn't he write about Canberra and the League of Nations? I'm like, no, it's tongue in cheek, right? But but he would get up at nine in the morning. He would jog to his office. He'd work six days a week. He'd roll his sleeves up. At five o'clock, he'd then pour a bourbon, you know, and there'd be a day a week where he'd go out for a long lunch. But um, there's no question he worked incredibly hard. You couldn't produce that amount of, Work And what's more, he was a public intellectual and activist who fought for copyright law reform, for author's rights, um, you know, for all of these things. And I think that all of us on the left, if I can put it that way, or
0: people who are left-leaning owe him a great debt for making the world a better place. Now I had a particular passion for a uh, cocktail which I uh, I mentioned at the outset <laughs> and you have a, a passage in here which is so good that I'm just going to pass you the book, Catherine, and see if you can read that uh, that section. starts at the bottom of page 125.
1: Okay. So one of the things I'll say is that um, Frank wrote a semi-fictional memoir um, called Martini in 2006 which preceded me writing the biography, his biography, obviously. Um, and I've always said that um, so if you had lunch with Frank, and it was lunch as opposed to an interview, you know, he would have rules of living. And, you know, the, the martini... Um, you know, there's the, the old Dorothy Parker joke, you know, I love to drink a martini, one or two at the most. Three, I'm under the table. Four, I'm under the host. <laughs> um, and I, I think that the martini appeals to Frank precisely because it's a drink... ...that's poised between the poetic and the pedantic. And he satirised the ritualism with which he drank martinis this way... um, with ...with a joke called The Martini Rescue. He described what to do when lost in the forest or the bush. You do not panic. You do not walk aimlessly. You find a shady spot with a fine view. You sit down. You take out the cocktail shaker the gin, the vermouth and the olives from your backpack, which every sophisticated trekker carries, and mix yourself a martini. If there is a glacier nearby, you chip off some ice to chill everything down. You will not be lost for long. Within a few minutes, someone will come from nowhere, tap your arm and say, excuse me to make a proper martini.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So, Canberra. Uh, In uh, Cold Light, Edith talks about how Canberra encourages its citizens to live confidently and with mettle, to become exemplars. Uh, Edith talks about how the city has a bush soul and is a place of communal memory. Uh, What was Frank's relationship with Canberra?
1: Well, so Frank wrote the first two volumes, the League of Nations volumes, so Grand Days, and then Dark Palace. So Grand Days is about Edith Campbell Berry, who comes from the south coast, like Frank, and goes as a young idealist to the League of Nations, which was meant, of course, to prevent the Second World War after the Great War. And then Dark Palace chronicles the tragic fall of the League of Nations and the rise of fascism. So, I mean, you you know, I've read those books a number of times. I still tear up reading Dark Palace. So he said that was it. ...to his publisher, Jane Palfreyman. He said, I'm I'm done with Edith. And then it occurred to him that she would return from the League of Nations... ...to the sort of really, this is post-Federation... ...but it's really the building of the capital... ...and the designing of the capital. And Edith, like Frank, talking about rituals and rules for living... ...believed that if you could design a capital perfectly... ...that somehow you would make civilised rules for living... He was very interested in that, and he was very interested in the Burley Griffins. Um, Well, Marion Mahoney Griffin and and Walter Burley Griffin, who were both architects, who had a huge hand in designing Canberra, as you will know. And um, so he was... So Edith was always obsessed with the finest details of how you run a committee meeting. Um, You know, what kind of blotters you put in front of people, what kind of chairs and how you arrange them, because he believed that if you can do these things well, people would become more civilised. And so he saw Canberra as a grand experiment in this, in the same way that the League of Nations was a grand scheme in trying to work out the rules for global civilised living, which in hindsight is slightly ludicrous, but incredibly ambitious, and I hope that we still have that kind of potential in us as humans.
0: One of the touches that I really relish is the uh, the use of the American spelling Capitol to refer refer to the Parliament, uh, in on, homage to uh, to Walter Walter and Marion. Um, did he enjoy being in Canberra? Did he spend much time here?
1: Yeah, when when he was writing the book, he spent a lot of time in the archives here, in the National Archives, and he. Um, Yeah, I think, well, you know, I lived in Canberra because I worked in the press gallery too and, I mean, one of the things about Canberra is it is, there is a kind of, well, certainly if you're in the heart of it, um, this incredibly civilised aspect to it. I always used to laugh when I was in the press gallery with Margot Kingston and Paulita Clark and Michelle Grattan and some of these people about how, you know, relentlessly middle class the inner circle of Canberra is. Uh, and I think he found that entertaining.
0: So this is, of course, the bush capital and Frank had a particularly strong relationship with the bush. You talk about his uh, his regular hikes in the, uh, in the bush. How would he plan those and, and what role did they play in his creative process?
1: Well, I mean, this is the thing. Everything had to have a ritual around it. So he would plot these walks in the bush he'd go out for seven or eight days at a time sometimes and you know he had lists and lists and lists of everything um he only ever got into trouble once in the bush in his 70s where he had to be medevaced out um but he would often just go out into the badawangs where he loved near Nara, and um he said it gave him relief from other human contact and it gave him a chance to move away from his writing, and just he liked the solitary sense of the bush. So this is why he's a kind of contradiction in terms. I mean, this guy who is who's a, who likes cross dressing, um, also you know was a scout, a boy scout, and was obsessed with bushwalking, and um, and he and I think you know John Watson, one of our greatest writers wrote a beautiful book called The Bush, where he talks about the the role that the bush plays in the Australian imaginary. Towards the end of his life, Frank started to talk a lot more about his regret that he hadn't properly engaged enough with our First Nations people and their relationship to country and their relationship to country around where he grew up. Because he felt this relationship to the bush, but, you know... It was only later in life that he started to question, you know, the fact that other people had been here for 60,000 years.
0: So he wished he could have done more bushwalks with First Nations people learning the stories?
1: Well, certainly learning more from them, yeah, because he did regard the bush as kind of a sacred place, I think. But um, when Jennifer Jones published her book about the CWA and the Colabar, and he then returned to this idea that it had an Indigenous nanny... You know, he talked to me a lot in the last five years of his life about, you know, that... You know, well, generationally, he was 83 when he died. I mean, these weren't conversations that were really active conversations until much more recently, um, and we are certainly having them
0: now. On the theme of race, race and ethnicity, you talk about some of the... Contradictions in cr- critics uh, depicting uh, uh, Australian writers dealing with multiculturalism, which is seen as a good thing, versus living overseas, which is seen as a bad thing. And you have the lovely example of critics who praise David Malouf for being of Lebanese descent, but then criticise him for living part of the year in Italy. Um, did Frank bridle a lot at that uh, that criticism of his time abroad?
1: Well, yes, yeah, So he he won what was then what was. ...has become known as the Keating Fellowship. So Paul Keating established this, you know... ...fantastic creative fellowship for writers. And so that allowed him to spend five years... ...in the League of Nations archives... ...and um, to research the first two books of the trilogy. And so... ...an interesting... I mean, amazingly... ...Grand Days was ruled out as um, insufficiently Australian... Um, for them to be um, eligible for the Miles Frank- Franklin Award, okay, which is established for Australian writing, and of course Edith Campbell Berry is Australian, and the history of League of Nations tells us that there were actually a lot of Australian women who were sent in delegations to the League of Nations. So he his response to it, I think, was quite fabulous. Was then to write this book, Loose Living, which was a set of series of comic essays about the cultural cringe, among other things. Um, But also, you know, this he satirised it in a speech at a literary luncheon where he said, oh, people imagine me living in a French chateau and, you know, drinking wine all day and, you know, um, eating lots of um, French cheese with someone who's the Duke of something, you know. And so I I think that um, the... But he he would have argued, and I think I, I think probably not so much now that the cultural cringe, this idea, this tension between being Australian and being European, was um, alive and well still
0: in the 80s and 90s. Catherine, what did the writing of this book look like for you? Uh, was this a, a largely a pandemic project? Were you moving or moving around a lot? Do you uh, produce in in a in a garret, or do you tend to uh, tend to write when you're on the road doing your interviews? Um, well, look, I've always had to have a day job to support my writing habit, <laughs>
1: so that's the first thing. It's very hard to make a living in this country writing. Um, I mean, I don't write academic academic books. I try to make write accessible books that interest I guess what you'd call a literate readership. Um, and I wrote I started writing this book ten years ago, seriously, but I wrote another three books in between. Um, you used to be an academic professor here, and so you understand you know you've got to produce. that's part of the gig. Um, but this was really this is my life's work. I mean, it was ten years, seventy five interviews, one hundred and sixty boxes in the archives. Like for me, if I wrote nothing else, this is the book.
0: Are there are aspects of Frank that you've found yourself incorporating into your life. Do you drink martinis? Um, well, my cousin Paul's here, and he actually recalled when he ro- walked in
1: today, hi, Paul, um, that I once when he and his wife Diane were staying with me in my my apartment. Um, I went out for lunch with Frank and he said, darling, I think you are a little sloshed when you arrived home. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm one of those people a bit like Frank, I suppose. You know, I used to run half marathons. I'm a pretty frenetic exerciser. But, yeah, I do give the Chardonnay a nudge occasionally. Rarely the martini.
0: Have you adopted his rigour in terms of writing or did you always have that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like most writers... I mean, I was, you know, annoying my primary school friends, you know, by getting the teacher to allow me to read out a serialised novel that I was writing right throughout third and fourth class. But, I I mean, I engaged it once a week and I engaged them by putting them into the story as characters. So, I worked out flatter people and they'll listen.
0: (laughs) Does a good biographer need to like their subject?
1: That's a really interesting one. I mean, Frank and I met in... I was in America, in New York, on what was called a Harkness Fellowship. It was an academic sort of fellowship at NYU. And we were both invited to something that I recall as improbably titled the Washington Festival of Australian Ideas. And I went up to him and said, I'm a huge fan of your work. I started reading it as a teenager in Newcastle and reading about Bohemia and thinking, wow, because my parents were pretty liberal and left-leaning. I mean, small or liberal, left-leaning and... Permissive, so I, I was reading this stuff in my early teens, and I told him all this, and he said, "Ah, the Australian Festival of Ideas. Shall we discuss the F- hills hoist or the Esky? <laughs> <laughs> so that's where our friendship started. But in two thousand and four, I wrote a piece about him, um, a, a lunch profile piece for the Bulletin, and when I was that, when I was still working as a journalist, and. ...we started talking about the idea of the biography... ...because he very kindly said, I think you really get me. Um, so when, we, when I started the biography seriously ten years ago... ...it tempered the nature of our friendship. And yes, I do love Frank and I did love him... ...and I feel sad all the time about his death... ...but um, it put a distance between us and I think it had to...
0: You were very careful, you said, about not revealing uh, personal information about people who had uh, been romantically involved with Frank. What about disclosures that he made Were you did you take a sort of um, full full disclosure approach to, uh, to things that, that he revealed or are there snippets of things that he said to you that you decided to, to hold back and I did decorum
1: yeah and this is probably why I was, why I was a crap journalist I don't go for the kill <laughs> I never did I'm, um, I I think I'm someone who for me ethics is about empathy and generosity. Um, I think you can be a good writer and a good journalist without doing a tell-all. Other people may go into the archives and there's a lot there. Um, But yes, I know things about Frank that I haven't revealed.
0: Is there another book that you would ever envisage writing that you will place in the archives for release in 100 years' time once everybody involved has passed away? No, I'm done here.
1: Not with book writing. I think the next thing I want to write is a best-selling chick-lit novel. I'd like to make some money out of writing for once, people. (laughs) Get out of academia. (laughs)